Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. I'm about to have a conversation with one very creative woman. Samantha Holmes is a sculptor, visual artist based in New York City, the Bronx to be exact, and thousands of miles away in Ravenna, Italy. Her work explores the impact, and I quote, of distortion on patterns sourced from science, religion, and art history. We're definitely going to go down that road. Samantha works in metal, stone, and paper, creating intricate lace-like sculptures. The most recent, Mondillo. It's a monument to women's work and the cultural dynamism and was inspired by Puerto Rican lace work and at the same time highlights both the softness of cotton and the resilience of steel. It's on view for all to see on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Samantha's art has been exhibited internationally in Venice at the Palazzo Fortuné, the Sharjah Art Museum in the United Arab Emirates, as well as the Bronx Museum of the Arts. Public art commissions also include Manhattan's Riverside Park, Franconia Sculpture Park in Minnesota, and Moscow's Art Play Design Center. Samantha is the recipient of the 2018 Meyer Family Award for Contemporary Art, as well as the 2011 International Guy M. Art Prize from the Museum of the City of Ravenna, where her work is part of its permanent collection. Samantha received a Bachelor of Art degree in Visual and Environmental Studies from Harvard and a Master of Fine Arts Experimental Mosaic from the Academia de Bellarte in Ravenna. So let's meet and get to know Samantha Holmes. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Hi, Sandy. Thank you for having me. Samantha, where did the talent in the art come from as well as the interest? Yeah, I've been doing art in some capacity as long as I can remember. Particularly when I think about public art, some of my earliest memories are actually of a small sculpture park that's just north of Manhattan. So I was born in Carmel, New York, uh, just north of of the city. And um, there was a small sculpture park at the PepsiCo uh, corporate center that wasn't too far from where my parents and I lived. And I remember going there with my parents and my brothers and sitting under these enormous sculptures and being able to interact with that art in a way that wasn't mediated by necessarily a gallery experience, wasn't, you know, in a museum behind a cordon. You could really kind of touch it, climb on it, sit under it. It was Um, much freer, a much freer experience. Exactly. And I think that that really influenced me more than I realized for for a number of years that my first art experiences were very hands-on. There wasn't this this separation, this divide between the art and the viewer that I think we Mm. get in a lot of contemporary art spaces. So it spoke to you, and that's one thing. But where did you go in terms of being driven to create, even at a young age? Yeah, when I was a kid, I remember no matter what the assignment was in school, I would find a way to make something physical. So if I was supposed to draw a map of a Civil War battlefield, I would come in with like a fully three-dimensional Essentially, like a, a, a fully realized diorama with trees and mountains. Oh my God. Where, um, you know, if I had to, I remember once in a science class, we were supposed to build a little bird's nest with, with grass. And I went out, I decided to do a, um, some kind of bird that lives in the marshes. And I went out to a wetlands near my house and I, I clipped reeds 
And I learned how to cast plaster so that I could stand the reeds up and then suspend a bird's nest, you know, in the top of those. And so even when I was a kid, if there was ever an opportunity to make, I went all the way. How old were you when you recreated that marsh scene? (laughs) Uh, It was definitely grade school. It was definitely grade school. And, um, you know, my parents were hugely supportive of that. I remember my dad was out there in the marsh with me. Um, And so, you know, I I really credit them with having been always supportive of that. Um, And with my teachers for sort of letting me get away with a lot because I you know, yes, I would also turn in the papers and, and I was a good good student for, for whatever that's worth. But I was I was always interested in finding a way to bring in a physical representation of the thing in, in every class that I that I took. And I I I'm really grateful for having had that opportunity because I think I, I was just building, always building, you know, what I was seeing in my mind was sort of always coming out in three dimensions. So it doesn't surprise me that I ended up a sculptor in a way. Well, it's so critical that no one stopped you from engaging in your own creativity, which is is really seminal that you that you had that space and that encouragement to do that. Yeah, and I think it was very much at my own urging some of the time, right? So um, you know, when I remember making that that sort of silly, enormous Civil War battlefield, you know, that wasn't there was no assignment to make a a model there. I just was was finding ways to always be building, essentially. Um, and I think the fact that, yeah, that 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 was sort of permitted or encouraged um, was really important and sort of taught me also to live a little bit on my own terms, um, mm, mm. you know, that, that it's possible to, to not always follow the conventional route. So, you know, something might be assigned, but maybe I could do this other thing that was more exciting to me. To put a Samantha spin on it as it were. Exactly. And I, I suspect that that's a, that's almost a prerequisite for going into a creative field is, you know, this ability to, to always be finding the way to create even when you're a kid, even when you're, you know, doing something for money or, you know, in whatever mm-hmm. capacity that 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 a project finds you to then be able to interpret that um, honestly and creatively and openly uh, in your own way. Well, and also to be given that support and as yeah. I, and as I said, the encouragement to Absolutely. say, go keep going for it, girl. So. Yeah. As you got older, and this became still a very important part of your life, talk about what that meant then for you to go to Harvard, which on some level is an interesting school to pick, as opposed to, you know, the Art Institute of Chicago. Absolutely. I mean, I think when I was, you know, 17 and choosing a school, I didn't know exactly where anything I was passionate about was going to lead me, but I knew that I wanted to be in a place where I could follow my passions in whatever direction they took me. And yeah, studying art at Harvard is, is it's a small department, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, but what it allowed me was to have access to an enormous amount of other resources uh, in terms of just learning and kind of opening my mind and being exposed to other kinds of areas 
that you know, ultimately are where a lot of inspiration comes from as an artist. So I was able to go to my classes in the art department and and be painting. Um, at that point, I was actually a painter. My entire undergraduate career was in painting. Um, so I did, you know, photography and painting and, and drawing. Um, but then I was also taking classes in art history, in science, in literature. And I think for me, that was really important because a lot of my work is about or sort of takes inspiration from, you know, cultural history and and, um, current events and kind of what's happening in the world around us. And so even though, you know, I was young and sort of starting off, I think I was aware that I wanted to still have a relationship with all those other fields to not say I'm only going to do art, um, but rather I'm going to do art and you know, keep taking classes, keep learning about other things. And I think that that kind of steered a lot of what my work was about. When you're describing that, does the word political become applicable? I don't think that my art has ever been explicitly political. Um, You know, I think I'm very interested in engaging with uh, particularly in public art, the communities in which my work is being displayed. Um, I'm very interested in interacting with ideas and sort of historical and cultural reference points, but not necessarily political. No, I would say not not so much. So you you spend four years at Harvard, and then did you go immediately after that to Ravenna? No, I didn't. So I had a little bit of a roundabout path there, as I think, you know, is is pretty common in the arts. So as I said, when I was at Harvard, I started out as a painter and um, it was there that I discovered mosaics. So I was taking a course at the time with a painter called Nancy Michnik, and I was taking a course of hers where we used what were considered sort of lesser known or, or less common media in painting. So we were doing egg tempera where we were mixing the pigments with, uh, with the egg whites ourselves. We were doing encaustic, working with wax. Um, and we did, one, we did one mosaic and it wasn't with proper technique. It wasn't with proper materials. We weren't cutting glass or stone, um, but we, you know, painted essentially like chipboard and cut it up into tiles and worked with them. And I fell in love. Um, And I just felt this, I don't know, moment of recognition where I knew this was something that wanted, I wanted to have be a part of my creative world. And so I, uh, I actually got a grant from Harvard to go and travel throughout Europe, I think my final year of university, and look at mosaics. So I went to Italy, uh, including Ravenna, where I would later end up living. Um, I went to Spain, and I went to Greece. And I really just spent time looking at mosaics and seeing how they how they live in the architecture they're in, how they interact with the communities that they're placed in. Um, I remember being in a church in Greece where uh, the parishioners would kiss the feet of the mosaics when they came in, uh, kiss the feet of these mosaic saints. And, you know, really looking at, at what those interactions were and what mosaic does in the space. And and what impact it had on the parishioners exactly. or on the visitors. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I went, I traveled, I did that. And then 
I went back to Harvard and I was planning to do my senior thesis in Mosaic, um, but the department felt that Mosaic, that, that this kind of craft tradition, wouldn't be contemporary enough, wouldn't be contemporary art, and uh, really pushed back a little bit. And we sort of came to a head. And uh, in the end, I, I did a thesis in painting and in uh, collage. But there was this seed planted in my head that said, this is something mm-hmm. I need to do. And so I graduated and I, I started working actually in um, visual design uh, in a design firm in New York City. And, you know, I think I had that thought a lot of people have when they're coming out of a, a art school or a creative program that is maybe there's a way I can be creative while working in industry. And so right, I, right. I, I sort of tried that for a couple of years and I love it. It uses an interesting part of one's mind, but I missed working with my hands. Uh, I just missed it too much. Uh, a couple of years later, it was 08 and it was the recession and I found myself out of work and I found myself writing cover letters and realizing I didn't want the jobs I was applying for. And so I started sending out a very different kind of letter where I was emailing mosaic artists around the world. And I would just wow. say, hi, you know, this is something that <laughs> I have been thinking about for years. I'm ready. I, w- I want to learn this tradition so that I can, you know, apply it to making contemporary art and, and see what that produces. And, um, you know, it's it, there's a small number, relatively small number of people in the world who do this. Um, there's an even smaller number of people in the world who do this in a way that really comes out of the the old traditions, which is what I was interested in, was really learning this technique properly. And then it turned out that a, a, a large proportion of those all live in one city in Italy, and that's Ravenna. Um, and Ravenna was the, uh, it was the capital of the Roman Empire, the Western capital of the Roman Empire during the Byzantine era, which is sort of the highlight, just sort of the, the pinnacle of mosaic, I think you could say. And um, because it's an apprenticeship craft and was passed down generation to generation, Many of the best practitioners of this still live in that city. So it was a no-brainer for you to make well, a beeline? I, you know, I found that a number of the people I wrote to were based there. And finally, one of them wrote back and said, you know, I can't tell you to move here for this because we, you know, you never, and, and I can attest to this, you know, many years later now as a practicing mosaic artist, among other things, you never know when you'll have work. Sometimes you have an enormous project that takes two years and sometimes you have nothing mm-hmm. um, because the, the projects are very intensive and time intensive. And you right, really labor intensive, do, yeah. Mm-hmm. You just do one at a time. And so they said, you know, we can't promise there will be work. But if there were work and you were living here, then you could be our assistant. And somehow I heard this and said, well, then I should be there. <laughs> <laughs> but is that what made you go to the Academia di Bellarte in Ravenna? That's- it is. It is. So I decided I should be there in case someone needed an assistant. And <laughs> Over order, here, here I Exactly. Am. And in order to get a, uh, a visa, I needed to affiliate with a program, a university. So I affiliated with the Academia 
the Academy of Fine Arts there in Ravenna, which is one of the only institutions in the world that gives degrees in mosaic. And for me, more interestingly, gives degrees in experimental mosaics. So it's really looking at mosaic as a contemporary art form. I affiliated there thinking I would just take one course and sort of wait for this phone call to come, letting me assist on a project. Right. Um, and I got there and they said, you know, it's it's the same price to take all the courses as to take one. And I thought, OK, let me go and check them out. And it was incredible. Um, there were courses looking at mosaic and architecture, mosaic and art history, mosaic and contemporary art, the chemistry of mosaic. Uh, the restoration of mosaic. So it was this full 360 on this medium I had wanted to learn. And I, I just dove right in. I mean, and all of this is happening in Italian, which at the time I had a very, very limited grasp I'm of. just going to ask about communicating. Was that a real impediment for you? Um, it was, I would say, a real challenge. I would not say it was, I mean, it must have been an impediment, but it felt like a challenge. I... I hadn't had another language before I decided to do this. When I decided to go to Italy, I started taking private lessons, you know, one hour a week with the naivete of an American who only has one language and thinks that that's enough to learn. Right, right. Um, and I landed and and I sort of thought, oh, no, <laughs> um, because Ravenna is a, is a relatively small city. Um, you know, I think more and more there are people who speak English there. But at the time, that was very rare. Um, I think in the years I lived there, there were only a couple of people I knew who spoke any English at all. And what years were those? 2010 to 2013. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, you know, I learned through immersion, which they say is the best way to learn a language. And I can, I can attest, I, I got, you know, relatively fluent, relatively quickly. Um, the coursework, you know, had the advantage of being visual. You know, I'm a very visual learner, maybe unsurprisingly. And so for me, the best way to learn was really to see what what was happening. So in the studio, I couldn't understand every word, but I could watch their hands mm -hmm. um, and I could I could test things out and they could correct me. Um, and, you know, in in critiques, someone would show their work and and we could sort of fumble through the the descriptions of it. But I was able to learn and absorb so much from those lessons, even just, you know, with my eyes and the limited language I had. And then obviously, you know, month by month, it became a more and more rich experience. But in those early days, you know, I think being sitting and looking at mosaic in architecture, photos of mosaic in contemporary art, photos of, you know, it, it was really impactful. Um, and, and, and I think was enough. Did that pan out that you got to be an assistant to someone? Yeah, I assisted on a few projects while I was there. Um, some of them uh, in Russia. So I ended up doing a couple of residencies in Russia with Marco Bravura, who's an Italian mosaic artist who moved to Russia and, and works primarily there now. But I did a few assistants, uh, a few assistantships um, where I helped on larger projects. And I also worked on some of my own larger projects with within the studios of more advanced mosaic artists who could give me feedback and advice. Um, and it's, you know, part of the advantage of such a small community is that it's also a very close community. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and there's a way where everybody is is always ready with, you know, advice about materials or sourcing or, or um 
technical approaches and and that's really it's it's a yeah it's a it's a beautiful small tight-knit little world of of artists there um clearly you were then ready to come home at some point and when mm -hmm. you did then in a way did you hit the ground running did you know what it was that you wanted to do well it's an interesting question so I came home in 2013 and I have, I do run a mosaic studio. So I did run a, or I did start a mosaic studio called Motivo Mosaic that I run with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Monica Pizzelli, who is also trained in Ravenna. And we do that. Um, it's a lot of, you know, some of it's our own work and some of it is interpreting other artists. So an artist will come to us and say, you know, they have a commission for a mural can we help translate their work into mosaic? And that's very interesting uh, as well, is this, this world of translation where you're looking at what happens when you move from painting to sculpture. Mm -hmm. But I will say, I think um, an unexpected thing happened when I came back to New York, which is um, that in my own personal practice, I, in some ways, I, I, I wouldn't, I didn't necessarily move away from mosaic, but I moved away from traditional mosaics so you know I went from being in Italy where you're surrounded by stone and all of this like marble and yellow and white and these soft colors and I came back to living in Manhattan surrounded by glass and steel and and my work changed mm. um, and I started working a lot with metal and in the early works, the first works that I came when I moved back here, I actually was creating tiles out of metal. So I started um, either hand cutting out of aluminum or laser cutting out of steel tiles as if, you know, as if out of ceramic or stone, um, but working with metal because I was, I was sort of surrounded by metal. And one of the reasons that I was interested in mosaic all along is that I, it, it's, it's a material that speaks to a kind of permanence. Um, you know, it's stone. We know stone. It is strong. It will last thousands of years. And so when I first began using it, part of my interest was in, you know, making the impermanent permanent. So the idea that if you represent a figure or a moment or a form, in mosaic, you are rendering it eternal in a way. And I think this mm -hmm. is also why you see religions use it a lot. You see political movements use it a lot. I mean, mosaic really is the medium of, of empire. You know, when mm. someone wants to say, I am eternal, they call a mosaicist. Wow. And I, and that's true even in New York, interestingly enough, around the turn of the century here, when we first started building skyscrapers, we started filling them with mosaics and you don't notice it because a lot of them are inside in New York, but downtown there are a lot of early 20th century mosaics from that era where, you know, capitalism was this thing that we were a hundred percent behind and we wanted to prove that it would be there forever. And lo and behold, what did we represent that in but mosaic? So I came back here and I was surrounded by steel and in a way, metal became a new way for me to express that kind of strength and permanence. Mm -hmm. um, because I think in the modern world, and in, in especially in an urban modern world, 
that's the material that we almost feel more with our bodies to be permanent, to be strong. You know, when we see stone, if you're living in a place where you're next to a mountain or where all the buildings are made of stone, then that maybe feels to you like permanence. But here, you know, here, the, the natural world, it's a little bit further apart, you know, and it's a little bit uh, domesticated. Mm-hmm. And somehow the man-made landscape feels stronger, feels feels more permanent, feels almost more wild, even though, of course, in the end, we'll lose. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so, I turned to metal, and that became my new medium for expressing that kind of permanence. And, and when I'm talking about permanence, I think a lot of the time what I'm really talking about is, is impermanence, right? So, so it's taking things and gestures and moments that are soft or impermanent and human and trying to say, you know, let's freeze this and really look at it. Was this a challenge for you to, uh, and I'm using this term in quotes, open your own business? What was that oh, like for you to, yes. to, yes. to, to yes. do this? I mean, that's <laughs> that's mountain climbing, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. And it, uh, and it continues to be. Um, you know, I am an artist and my partner is an artist. And we, you know, I think any... A uh, small business class would tell you, you know, get someone involved who who knows business, and they would be correct. It is a, <laughs> it's a challenge, and yeah, I, I there's a lot to learn that is not the the, the stuff that I'm naturally uh, gifted in necessarily, or, or that you're or drawn to. I drawn mean, you, to, yeah. I, I mean, it's, yes. you know, I don't want to, you know. Li- uh, add up a column of figures and find out, you know, what my assets are versus my debts. Exactly. It, it, it's tricky. And these last however many years that is now have been a huge learning curve for me. And, and you know, I think my um, accountant would attest that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot mm. of growth yet to do in terms of knowing what I'm doing and doing things properly. But, you know, we're doing our best and um, the business has been going well. We've made some really beautiful works, uh, which is what we care about. You know, the thing about Mosaic is it, it at the end of the day, it it requires a, a team, a large team to to make things that are on that scale if you're working slowly and using these traditional methods. And so um, you, you sort of have to operate as a business. I will say that that learning that did help me sort of transition in some ways or or was a similar set of skills that I use now in doing more and more public art. Um, and so that's interesting is is to sort of realize, you know, I think I think sometimes that art school, I mean, and I didn't go to any kind of traditional art school. I don't, I don't think I would call the one in Italy traditional either, given that what we were doing was so niche. But I do think that there should be more emphasis in art schools on preparing students for for what it actually means to be an artist because you know at the end of the day you're you are your own boss and it is like running a small business and there's a lot of practical challenges to that that you know I've spent the last 15 years sort of learning by trial and error so um yeah you're you're absolutely right that there's a there's a real level of like the daily battle of what it means to sure you know, I'm, I'm struck. Is this accurate for me to call it the intimacy of mosaic 
oh. versus the um, hmm, the exact opposite of that when you're talking about working in metal and stone and and creating these sculptures that are on some level larger than life. What a oh, contrast. That's interesting. I like that. I, I I have it. I like that phrase because there is a real intimacy to the way I work. So one thing that we say about mosaic is that it has to function from up close. You know, we're laying every tile by hand, but right. it also needs to function from across a room because it's primarily architectural. And I think with sculpture, it's the same thing. Um, you need to be looking at, you know, every inch of the thing. And it has to have that kind of surface interest. And then it has to function as a whole. So in some ways, I think that that's a, that's a, a parallel between them and not necessarily a, a divide. Mm. Um, but there is, yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I also, when I talk about wanting you to be able to touch sculpture and touch public sculpture and climb on public sculpture even, um, although I'm not sure that most places that commission public work would like me to say you should climb on it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think there is an intimacy to that uh, that is fundamental, that is, that is such a part of why I do public art. So when you think of a, of a normal art object, let's say normal, let's, let's talk about like a classical art object. So like a small painting you might have in a parlor. Mm-hmm. You know, there are sort of two ways to view an object like that. One is that you're the buyer and you get to live with it and you get to see it every day and you get to have an intimate relationship with that work. And the other is that you see it in a museum and maybe you see it in a show, you know, once or maybe it's in a local museum and you can go every few months. But it's it's more of an event to see it. And the thing that I've always loved about public art is that it kind of allows that intimate relationship that a a collector has with a piece of art allows that to be had by, you know, regular people who are not, you know, who maybe aren't financially able to collect art, but also maybe don't have the inclination, who don't consider themselves to be art connoisseurs. And yet now have the opportunity to live with a work of art, to see it every day and see how their relationship to it changes throughout time. Um, that's something very beautiful to me. And I think that is a kind of intimacy. Let's take your recent work of Mundillo, okay? Mm-hmm. What inspired you to do that? What that meant to you, as I said, of a monument to women's work mm-hmm. and cultural dynamism and inspired by Puerto Rican lace work? What mm-hmm. if I don't know that? Do you want me to know that when I'm looking at your art? I mean, I've always been struck by that. Maybe that's not what I'm seeing. And then all of a sudden, not that it matters necessarily, but that I don't know what the spark was or what the catalyst was for you to yeah. create this. Does that matter to you? So for me, I think I I feel that art has to function both ways. I think true art should function both ways. So a person walking by, that initial response you have to an art object I think is valid, is always valid, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether right. you're drawn it, to it. It's got to roll. It looks like a butterfly. You know, people keep telling me this one looks like a butterfly. That's fine. I don't see a butterfly. I wasn't making a butterfly. I'm not terribly interested in butterflies, but it doesn't matter because if that's your entrance point into a piece, then that is important. And then, you know, 
in my mind, when you look at art, you have that initial response. And then if that piece speaks to you, you move closer. And then you get that secondary level where you look at it more closely, where maybe you read the description of it, where you find out what that piece is about. Um, and that can be through reading. It can be through just looking more closely. It can be through talking to someone about the piece and hearing their ideas. But you don't get to that second level if that first level doesn't touch someone. Right, um, right. And, and, and so I think, I think both of those are, are important. And, you know, knowing someone, knowing the idea, I, I want someone who, who is drawn to the piece to, to, to read that. I want it to be immediate enough. Um, that they can understand. I love it when people can recognize a pattern without prompting. So thinking of Mundillo, this piece I just installed on the Upper West Side, I was down there for a couple of days after installation to give it sort of a fresh coat of enamel. I wanted it to really shine again because it had a one-year installation in the Bronx before this. So I was down there for, you know, four hours each day, I think, first thing in the morning. And it was wonderful because being there gave people the opportunity to come up and talk to me about it. Sure, sure. It. Um, and the thing that for me was most exciting is that there were several people who came up and wanted to start talking to me about their grandmothers who had made lace or their mothers who made lace huh. or their cousins who did knitting. Um, you know, people started seeing in it their own families and their own right. narratives. And that's really what this piece is about. So it was really rewarding to me because it's not so much about them knowing what I'm trying to say. You know, my goal in using this specific pattern. So Mundillo is based off of a Puerto Rican lacework pattern called Mundillo. It's Puerto Rican because it, it was placed originally, it was designed for a Puerto Rican neighborhood in the Bronx, West Farm Square, or heavily Puerto Rican. Obviously, no neighborhood in New York is exclusively one thing or another, right. um, which is sort of our beauty uh, as a city, I think. But, you know, I wanted, and, and even this lace, which comes from Puerto Rico, you know, that lace pattern came before then. It came over from Spain. It came from Holland. So the pattern itself is sort of a story of cultural fusion uh, in the same way that the city is. And I wanted to put that, to, to use that lace or to use lace in general to take this soft domestic craft and make it strong and public and steal, again, this, this material that I think for, for urban kind of New Yorkers feels like the strongest, most celebrated thing we can make and take this soft kind of, yeah, women's work and put it out there on the street as a strong, celebrated public declaration of value. Right. And have people come up and tell me that they're seeing that. Not, not the kind of conceptual you know, what's written on the, on the placard, although that too, but that they see their mom or they see their grandma. And that yeah, to me, that's very powerful. Yes. Yeah. What's the situation with you and New York and Ravenna? Is it six months and six months or oh, is it I wish. As the spirit moves you? How, how, I how, wish. Does, how does so that I, work? Yeah. So I spent that initial three years there and then I moved back to New York and I was going uh, at least once or twice a year pretty regularly for as long as I could. So, you know, a month, six weeks at a time. And then COVID hit and now I haven't been in 
almost two years. Well, COVID hit and I had a child. So my child was born in the summer of 2019. And um, the kind of one-two punch of newborn and global pandemic yeah, <laughs> and that I am, uh, I am, I'm very, very much New York based right now. <laughs> I am, I yeah, it's sort of, I miss it very much. I am talking all the time with with people there, um, but uh, right now I'm I'm just New York based. Which well, yeah, you have to put certain things on the back burner. Has creating been enhanced for you? Are you in your studio all the time? What is that process like for you? Yeah, it's been interesting. Learning to make, again, after having a child is a process. And I hadn't expected that. I sort of took it for granted that I would find the time and I would find the energy. And, you know, what happened is for those first six months, um, and I I feel like this isn't talked about very much, um, but for those first six months after he was born, I was really just focused on figuring out how to keep a baby alive and and Mm -hmm, be a mother mm -hmm. and what that meant. But um, mentally, things were happening. So, um, well, physically too. So one thing that that started happening after I had my child is that, so while you're pregnant, often you don't lose any hair uh, for the nine months you're pregnant. And then after your child is born, you start losing all of the hair that you would have lost in the previous nine months. And so um, this sounds crazy, but I started keeping it. I have very long hair. I mean, basically waist length hair and and a lot of it. And so I was, I felt like I was swimming in it in my house. And so I started keeping it. I, you know, have a kind of creepy box full of hair at this point. And I was like something, I'm going to make something with this because there was something to me about the way that every part of our bodies is implicated in pregnancy and in childbirth and in becoming a mother. Like every, I mean, cells of your body that seem to have nothing to do. With right. You, yeah. Right. Like your hair. It's pretty it's, all encompassing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not even alive anymore. Why is your hair implicated? And yet it is. And so I started keeping it thinking, you know, I, I am going to find a way that, that this will find its kind of place in my work. And I know that, um, you know, also, I think, you know, my interest, I was saying before, my interest in um, permanence is often fueled by my interest in impermanence. And and I think that's true also in my choices of materials. So I often am using something either that feels, yeah, eternal, like steel or stone, or I use things that feel very, very delicate, like paper, um, gold leaf and and now hair and so that too was something like it had this delicacy to it but then you know if you if you learn about hair you find out it actually has the by weight it has almost identical strength to steel so here I found this this material that feels incredibly feminine feels incredibly delicate and yet has that same kind of masculine strength Mm -hmm. that that steel Mm -hmm. has Mm-hmm. Um, and so that became something. And, and I, I, you know, I will say in terms of how my creative process changed after having a child, I will say, I think that the, the, the mental step became a lot longer. So a lot more of my work happens in my head. And then when I get into the studio, I know exactly what I'm doing. 
Is that a good thing? That's an yeah, okay. I that's okay for you. I think it, it is what it is. I think it mm-hmm. is what it is. But I, you know, I think the time that I'm in the studio has to be more focused, and so um, because all, it's more precious. Exactly, and so all of that time that I might have spent there, just sort of thinking or you know playing with things, that time I think happens more in the background of you know all the other obligations now. And studio time is focused, and it's about you know putting things together and assembling them and responding to them and seeing what's working and what isn't. Um, but on that physical level, whereas the conceptual stuff now is happening, yeah, is a sort of constant low level bubble. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, this, uh, so this hair and this, this project came about, you know, directly out of, um, childbirth and the period after that and, and really dealing with the new identity of, of myself as a mother and, and really, um, how that changed my understanding of my own identity and, and women's identities. And well, that's because like life that. is also such a work in progress. Yeah. And exactly. that's what's so great about it, you know, in terms of that fluidity. And I mean, that doesn't preclude the fact that you still may be working in mosaic, that you haven't given that up. Oh, absolutely not. And I will never give that up. I mean, I, 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 I consider it important um, to kind of maintain that that craft tradition. I consider myself a sort of step in that long line of practitioners. So, you know, doing that is very important to me. And then, and then also on a physical level, uh, I don't know how to describe that. I I sort of need it. it it's I need to work with my hands, and that uh, fulfills that even when, yeah, even when it's not coming out. You know, even when maybe I'm working right now uh, with hair or with steel or whatever, but that that relationship to stone, that that kind of physical mosaic creation, it, it's just always happening in the background for me. Do you work on commission? Do um, people come to you and say, I would like you to create such and such a sculpture of this or that or? Uh, somewhat. So I... For public art, you often are approached to create a piece for a specific space. Right. Uh, and that's something that I love because, you know, again, I think in part it comes out of my mosaic background of thinking about art always in relationship to the space around it. And that can be architecture. It can be the landscape. And public art is very much that same set of, of considerations. And so in public art, yes, uh, often it happens that an institution or an entity will will come and ask me to propose something for a space. Um, and usually the content, um, if someone is asking me, the content is left up to me. So generally the idea is, you know, they, they already are familiar with my work. They know the content. Of course, of yes, right. But then of course, like, you know, for me in, in public art, it's very important that that art respond to the space in some way, um, not just physically, but also conceptually. So no piece that I'm designing for a site is going to look exactly like something I would propose for a different site. It's always mm-hmm. going to be new mm-hmm. because it's always going to respond in some way um, to that audience. So Samantha, what do you think when you look back over your life and your career? How does that give you pause, if in fact it does? 
Um, no, I, I, you know, I think when I look back, I feel, I feel like that same thing we talked about when you were asking these, these questions of, of, uh, what my childhood was like and, and creating things in childhood. You know, it's funny. I, I feel that, that approach of kind of doing things on my own terms is still very much how I work today. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, sometimes people ask me, well, why are you moving into a new medium? You know, when I started doing metalwork, people would say, well, why are you doing this? Or there's some, some of this work I'm doing with hair now. Um, a lot of it is using hair and stone. So it does relate to mosaics in a way. It's a material I'm very familiar with. Um, but some of it is hair and and cast concrete. Um, and so, you know, there's a way that I, I'm always kind of incorporating new media into my practice and learning new things. And, you know, I think that that is a necessity. I think that you add something when the, the conceptual force behind a piece requires that there be a new skill. And I think that my kind of artistic trajectory has has been that, you know, where the languages that are available to me are developing in relation to what it is I'm trying to say. And I think that's, for me anyway, I think that's necessary, that I, that I always be not only finding my voice, but finding the right language for that voice uh, in any given moment in, in my life. So uh, yeah, it is very much a labor of love. It is very much a labor of love. Um, and we're the ones who benefit from that. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I love what I do. It's nice when that can be true. I don't love it every day. I mean, there are days where it's a battle, um, where things aren't coming out the way you want them to, uh, or days where I'm, you know, doing budgets for new public art projects. And sure. Trying to get that stuff yeah. To work. But, yeah. you know, the ability, the, the moment when, you know, when I got to install Mundio and see that piece on the street, those moments kind of make all the rest of it make sense. Oh, I, I um, can't imagine that that wasn't huge. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Well, Samantha Holmes, it was really terrific to meet and get to know you and to hear about your passion and your creativity. I'm a great appreciator of art. I can't even draw a straight line, but I'm <laughs> so grateful for the work that that's out there by men and women. And I think one of the things that has fed my soul during the course of this pandemic is the ability to have gone to quite a few museums and seen some really great exhibitions in New York City. And that has just been more than wonderful. And I, I, I thank you so much for, for sharing your life with us and your, thank you. thank your you passion and your work. And um, you'll please continue to keep us in your loop. Love to have you back. Will do. Thank you, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 